Good day to you, friends. Um, and as I promised, I'm going to continue and finish off 1 Peter 3. We spoke last time about the first seven verses of 1 Peter chapter 3, which looked at wives and husbands, but also how we live our lives in relationship, and then also the witness that we give uh, to our faith. And um, today, we, we see that the second part of that chapter is a message addressed more gen generally to all Christians, and so we'll pick that up um, today. So if you want to turn in your Bibles 1 Peter chapter 3, we um, take it from verse 8. And again, I'll be using the New Living Translation as well as the NRV as our two reference Bibles. So Lord, as we listen in today to a message that was for the early church, but is a message also for us in the 21st century. Help us to understand your truth and to live this out in Jesus' name. Amen. So he starts off in verse 8. So if you're with me, have a look in your Bibles, verse 8. We'll take it verse 8 to the end of the chapter today. Finally, he says, in other words, after all that he's been saying about submission to rulers and masters, submission to one another, living as God's chosen people, he says this, all of you, so now he's speaking to the entire church, we, we almost imagine them all getting now, um, yeah, all their ears ready to listen to what he's got to say. All of you should be of one mind. Okay, um, it is... Another translation says, all of you live in harmony. Another one says, be like-minded. I think we get the idea of this. This is the call to be in unity. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted. One translation says, be compassionate and keep a humble attitude. Now, these five things, I think, would be a beautiful charge for any Christian community. They could even be used in a secular context like a school, even a workplace. But for the church, going through their struggles, dealing with their suffering, this is what's going to get them through this period of trial and difficulty, Peter suggests. Be of one mind, in other words, be, be harmonious, sympathize. In other words, don't just be selfish and think about yourself and your own struggles because they're all worth struggling in some, some point. But look to, it, to each other, in other words. Sympathize. Then love each other as brothers and sisters, Christian love. Be compassionate or tender-hearted. And I think often these things that are being presented by Peter and Paul in his letters are things that are not seen so clearly in the public space. So therefore, being tender-hearted and compassionate in a world that is not is equally a witness. And then keep a humble attitude or be humble. Now, Peter himself um, has learned from his own experience. You know, as he writes this, it's later on in his life. Um, it's like I said to you, about 30 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven, but I'm sure Peter still remembers the time in his life where he was not humble, where he was arrogant and promised many things to Jesus, but ended up falling short. So he can speak about humility because he knows what it's like to fall from grace. Then he says, do not repay evil for evil. 
Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Now there, <laughs> I think, is, is something that we still live with in today's time. The greatest temptation when someone has hurt you is to pay them back. Retaliation. Someone insults you, insult them back. Now, we, our world today does it publicly on, on social media, and that is even more disastrous. Because not only is it something that's, that happens in the heat of the moment, but it's there for everyone to continue to see. At least these uh, insults and, and things that were, were done were done sometimes, yes, in the public arena, but um, there wasn't so much of a written record of them. Yes, people were hurt by it, and then you lived with that kind of insult or that, that hurt, but, but now there's a record that follows you wherever you go. And Jesus' words to love your enemy as you love yourself, you know, love your neighbors, you love yourself, but also, you know, don't hate your enemy, but rather love them. Sure, that is, that is such a hard thing. And, and Peter, in another way, presents this to the early church. You know, follow the way of Christ. Because he says, instead of repaying evil or retaliation, he says, pay them back with a blessing. Sure, and that's, that's also something that's profound. So not, not only do we have to hold our tongues, but we need to bless them. We need to pray that God would give his best to those people. Now, that is truly a, a different way to live, different way to respond. He says, that is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. So um, the NIV says, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. It seems to me that the NIV puts it on almost like you, we will get our blessing once we've blessed those who insult us. Um, I'm not sure what other translations say, but there is this kind of link that we will receive a blessing or maybe a greater blessing when we bless those who, who hurt us. He then quotes the scriptures. Now, verse 10, 11, 12 are a direct quote from Psalm 34 verse 12 to 16, somewhere in there. Um, and, and just for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but he says that when we follow God, and this is, a, as I say, a quote from Psalm, uh, verse 11 stuck out from me. It says, turn away from evil and do good, search for peace and work to maintain it. And, and I think this is something that as Christians um, in today's time, also very relevant. What does it mean for you or I to search for peace? Is that peace in our own heart? And I think many of us need that. We live in such a busy and tiring world, and I, I speak from personal experience. One feels often very drained um, and very spent, and that can be emotionally and spiritually, even physically. So what, what does it mean for you or for myself to search for peace, and, and where would we search for peace? And then it also says work to maintain it. And I think this is an emphasis on being a peacemaker. We've spoken before, I'm sure, about the difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. But maintaining peace with friends, maintaining peace with family, maintaining peace even the congregation is a hard work. But there seems to be this call coming clearly from Peter, quoting from the Psalms, that we must search for peace and work hard to maintain it. And then he says, you know, God's eyes are, are watching and looking for us as we seek to do this.
Then he comes to the next section, verse 13. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? And I think the answer would be, well, not many people. You know, if, you, if you're eager to do good, uh, most people are willing to accept that with open arms. But clearly, the world in which Peter lived and the world in which we live, there may be one or two. So he says, but even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So there's this um, notion that we need to accept the fact that in doing good, many people will say thank you, but some will not. And, and I mean, just in a very small example has come to my mind as I'm speaking now, how <clears throat> as a church community, we've tried over the last few years to be involved in the ministry to the net or the homeless people in our community. And it's interesting that even as we've tried in our ways to do various things, um, is that most people understand and are, and are eager to, to help or eager to, to say well done, but there are a few um, who are not so comfortable. One example I'll give you is that for a time just before COVID, we opened up the part of our church, um, what we call the youth room or the purple mug, to have the folk from the home from the streets come in and to receive their um, coffee and tea and and um, biscuits in the morning to have a devotion and then just to be encouraged before they went out into the day and also to try and get some yeah, some skills training and and things set up so it was very early early days in the whole uh, movement um, and drive around the net but what happened very soon and I'm talking about days Days after we did this, obviously more and more folk from the street would come in just for the short time in the morning. So one or two neighbors um, in the community began to be very uncomfortable and spoke out and said, look, we don't want this here. And so where we felt that we were doing what was right, um, not that we suffered physical harm, but we did suffer a little bit of verbal abuse and, and people complaining. We just had to trust that God would make a, a way and a plan. Um, and I think he has done that or certainly is leading us in that direction. So, so Peter says, well, if that happens to you, don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Now, this um, speaks about being brave, um, having courage. And in the context of the time, it would have been important because Christians were choosing now not to bow the knee to Caesar, to, but to a different Lord, and that was to Jesus. And so they, they would have been asked questions from time to time um, because Christians were wrestling with things in this, in this day and age of obviously not sacrificing to, to Roman gods or idols, but also not even um, going to be signed up in conscription to fight for, for the Roman army. There's a whole lot of things. Even the way last week we spoke about husbands treating their wives, there, there, was, there was this, hopefully, this witness taking place. And if people were saying, you know, but tell me about this faith, that, that they would have been ready to share it. And this for ourselves is the same thing in today's time. People are quite anti-Christianity, um, more and more so, it seems. But if we continue to live, and, and here verse 16 says, in gentleness and respect, keeping our conscience clear. When people speak against us, they will be ashamed when they see the good life that we live because we long, belong to Christ. 
So in all of this, we keep our witness going. We keep witnessing to what Christ has done. And then he says in verse 17, remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than suffering for doing wrong. I think I made mention a few weeks ago that, you know, we can't be um, uh, silly about this and go out and do crazy things, believing we're doing it for God when actually we're just doing it for ourselves or some other egotistical reason, and then endure suffering and say, oh, no, but I'm doing it for God. Um, Because there's actually times when we, yeah, we we really need just to come to our senses um, and realize that we may be suffering just because we made a stupid decision. Uh, We can't always blame God in that. So, yeah, wrestle with that. Talk about that if you are doing this study with, with some friends. Verse 18, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. Um, Yes, I think this is also just a reminder in their letters. Peter and Paul would speak a little bit about theology, a little bit about what it meant to be a Christian. And here it comes up again. You know, remember Christ suffered once for all time. He, he never sinned, he was without sin, he, but he died for our sins, bringing us safely home to God. And that's that idea I love. In fact, I've circled that in my notes. Bring us safely home to God. Jesus in John 14 uses the image of a home also where he speaks about in his father's house, there are many rooms. Um, and it's this image that we will have a home, a haven, a place of rest and safety in the presence of God, even if we encounter suffering in this world and this life. He says, remember, he suffered physical death, but he was raised to life. So even that, not only telling the story of what happened to Jesus, but also of what would happen to us, that the physical bodies would pass away, but they would be raised to life in Christ. Verse 19, a very interesting one here, and you may want to spend a bit of time digging around here. It says, so he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, where where is that? Uh, Verse 20 says, those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. So, like I say, a lot of different opinions on this. Verse 20 may be indicating that the the people that died during the time of Noah, um, before that covenant, were in a, their spirits were in a place, a prison kind of place. I guess like what we would call purgatory, a place of waiting. So maybe that's where Jesus went. He went between his death, crucifixion, and the resurrection. What he did during those few days was to go and to preach to those spirits in the dead. Um, verse 20, like I say, could be narrowing it down to those people before that Noah story and the the, the covenant with Noah. Other scholars think that it could be talking about all people who died before Christ. So this is all the people, if you like, of the Old Testament. Their spirits were in a place of waiting, and so those who chose not to follow God were given this moment where Christ would come and preach to them. Now, again, this may open up other questions, and that is to say, oh, does this mean that we get a second chance to respond to God? And I don't, I don't think it's saying that, but other people ask the question. 
there, there's also um, a reminder. There, there are two scriptures in the gospel, one in Luke 4, verse 17 and 18, where Jesus says he's come um, to release the captives. Now, is that just the captives that are released from physical prison? In other words, to tell them they have hope, or is it people that are prisoners to sin? Is it these people who, whose spirits were in prison? And then the other thing is to say in Matthew 27, 52, 53, round about there, when Christ um, was crucified and then the resurrection took place, they said that there were a number of people raised from the dead wandering around. Now, is that also a connection with this? I'm going to leave it for you to do a little bit of research, but Peter definitely says, and this is more than likely an understanding that grew and was present in the early church, 30 years after Jesus had ascended, that that Christ had gone to preach to the dead. Um, so, yeah, ask questions, do a bit of reading, digging around, see what you can find. Verse 21, and that water is a picture of baptism which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he speaks about this, the water of obviously Noah's time, but the water of baptism. Um, it, it saves us not because of, it removes dirt from our body, we know that, but because it's, it's their response. It's a clean conscience. We come to God, the resurrection of Jesus, um, symbolic of the res of baptism. Also, another understanding that baptism needs to be public. Certainly in this time when people, you know, following Christ was hard and, and a lot of persecution, public baptism meant that you now were basically putting, nailing your colors to the mosque, uh, to the mosque. And down the line when you were thinking maybe I need to backtrack or turn back from God, this public baptism helped to resist that because now you had already said I'm a follower of Christ. So turning to Christ in those days, you know, you needed to make sure it was a costly thing. Um, you didn't have a public baptism today and tomorrow you decide, no, nah, I actually don't like that church. I'm going to go to another church or actually, no, nah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go to church at all because people will be looking at you, looking at the witness of your life. So your baptism really was a moment of that public recognition. And I know that some of us listening have different traditions. Whether it's an adult baptism, um, whether it's that moment of renewal of the vows, whether it's confirmation when you publicly stand up and say, I receive Christ as my Lord and Savior and I, and I want to follow him. All of that is public so that it's a witness. Um, if it just relied on us being doing it privately, there would be room, wriggle room to say, no, I've changed my mind and so on. But the public recognition of faith is so, so important. Lastly, verse 22, now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. Lovely verse in this time of ascension and leading up to Pentecost that Peter speaks about Christ going, ascending to heaven, seated in the place of honor next to God, speaking about that as being at the right hand of God the Father, and that all the angels and authorities and powers, so all of those in the supernatural realms, all of those that we cannot see but are at work, 
that they accepted the authority of Jesus. And this just gives credit to those Christians who are now following Christ. He is their Lord um, to say, you've made the right choice, that Jesus is the one with all authority. He's now seated at the, at the right hand of God the Father. And so he has all authority on heaven and on earth, and he will continue to be the one who leads us and who guides us. And I think that's a wonderful message to those early Christians um, and equally to us today, that whatever we face, that God is the one through Jesus Christ who's there, who intercedes for us, that Christ is the one who prays for us and who's there for us. So friends, I, I leave that with you today and I, and I hope that it's been in some way insightful, but may God continue to guide us as we wrestle with his scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen.